Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. China constructed a system in the reform period that made use of this very perverse system of household control and produced this huge outflux of migrant labor that served them very well to make China this economic powerhouse. But now it serves them very poorly because there's an actual decline in the availability of migrant labor. If I were a Marxist, and starting from the viewpoint that the Chinese system at the moment is basically a form of capitalism, then one of the observations that I would make is that the systems of Hukou equip the Chinese capitalist class with exceptional control over labour and exceptional capacities to eliminate forms of organised labour. In this episode, how China's household registration system continues to divide society. Here to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. If you're familiar with contemporary China, you've probably heard the term hukou. It refers to the national registration system of individuals and families, which every Chinese citizen is entered into at birth. But hukou is more than administrative data collection for the government. Indeed, as we'll hear, household registration and its associated policies have effectively kept China split into two distinct camps, urban and rural, leaving little room to manoeuvre. While the hukou is a pervasive part of life in China, determining an individual's access to key services like education and healthcare – What was it originally created to do, and why is it still in place? And how does its inherent discrimination and division sit with the soaring egalitarian rhetoric of the Chinese Communist Party? In the studio to pick apart the complexities and contradictions of the hukou system is longtime China sociologist Martin White, who is John Zwanstra Professor of International Studies and Sociology Emeritus at Harvard University and a University of Melbourne Asia scholar. Also joining the discussion is Asia historian Dr Lewis Mayo of Asia Institute. Welcome, Martin and Lewis. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's start with the very basic question of what exactly is the hukou system. Marty, it's so much more than just a registration system, isn't it? Absolutely. And the current form is just a modification of one that was really introduced in the 1950s under Mao. And that's one of the supreme ironies of the Chinese Revolution that Mao was, of course, from a rural area himself. He led a peasant army to victory in the revolution. But after they established control in China during the 1950s, they followed the Soviet model to a considerable extent. They wanted to collectivize agriculture, and they also wanted to create a system that would regulate and allow them to control rural to urban migration. And the regulations that they finally developed to do this in 1958, reinforced later on, and they're still with us today, although in the reform era, people start being able to move again. But for a period of time under Mao, basically there was virtually no rural to urban migration, which had never happened in Chinese history before. Indeed, it had never happened before, as you say, but Lewis, China had had a sort of hukou system right back into imperial times, hadn't it? I might just explain that what the hukou system does at present is to classify people as being either urban or rural. 
people can move between city and countryside, but their entitlements to various kinds of goods and services, if you like, land being one of them. Supposedly, if you have a rural huko, ultimately you have some land that's attached to you and your family. And if you have urban huko, then in theory, you have rights to permanent residence in a city and to the welfare services that are associated with that city. So China, of course, its industrialization in the post-Mao era was based heavily on a labor force drawn from rural areas, working in urban factories, but without urban entitlements. And the fact that the factory owners who were in some form of what you might call moderate private enterprise or semi-private enterprise did not have to provide rural migrant workers with the same welfare entitlements that urban permanent residents were entitled to, such as a pension and things like that. So urban workers in the post-Mao era are essentially differentiated between those with entitlements, permanent entitlements to welfare if they were in a state-owned enterprise which and is, those without. Which is fascinating for a party that began in rural areas. But tell me about in imperial yes. times. Okay. What did Mao take? So the system as a land-based imperial structure, dynastic China was dependent for its economic survival on grain production. And so ensuring that you had peasants who would pay tax in grain and provide services, government services, military service when called upon was an imperative for the imperial state. And because the imperial system worked through certainly from the um, probably 12th or 13th century later through a system of provinces, essentially what you had was everyone in the country registered at a particular location in a particular provincial system. Now, two concerns I think are important to note here. One is that even though, as Marty said, urban to rural migration was not restricted in imperial times in the way that essentially it was during the Great Leap Forward and after in Mao years. You know, it's important to remember, when I went as a 20-year-old to study in China in 1984, that was the first year when you could go from city to city and get rice in a restaurant without getting the grain tickets that were necessary for urban residents to actually get rice in a public restaurant. In other words, a system of grain rationing, which meant that if you were in a city and you had a government work unit, the rice that you would use came through this system of grain tickets. Now, that meant, of course, that if you came from the countryside and you got into a city somehow or other, unless you had access to these ration tickets, and we're talking about the system up until the 1970s, you literally couldn't eat anywhere. But why was that in Mao's interests? Part of it goes back to the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union established the original version of this system. They collectivized agriculture, and they expected that collectivized agriculture would actually produce bumper harvests. But it never did in the Soviet Union, and it never did in China. Nonetheless, what it did do was to give the state control over the crop output and being able to enforce procurement targets at state-set low prices. So the state could control how much 
grain and other crops it would take from the countryside and use those to feed the cities. And they could do that even if there wasn't enough left for people to eat. And of course, in the Soviet Union, there was a massive famine, particularly in the Ukraine in the early 1930s. China had a much bigger version in 1959 to 1961. So the original idea was to sort of organize peasants and make sure that they're doing their job of producing the grain. But the Soviet Union also introduced a system of internal passports. But the irony is in the Soviet Union, because of the demography was different and the economic trend was different, there was pretty constant urbanization. So it never really rigidly restricted people to stay in the village. Like it but did in China. It, but in China, it really did. The system in China under Mao, not lightly, I refer to it as socialist serfdom because, in fact, we're talking about the vast majority of the population. Eighty percent or more of the population had rural origins, lived in rural areas, even in 1978. They were bound to the soil. And was that about, as you've just explained, ensuring that they could produce what they wanted to produce, that they had the people to produce it where they wanted them to be? I wasn't sitting in with Mao in the Politburo meetings and, you know, discussing how they came up with these regulations in the 1950s. But again, the irony of ironies is that Mao and his colleagues took their ability to control the countryside for granted. But the cities, they only began to control large cities in 1948, just before they won the Civil War. Cities had been the center for nationalist power and a foreign influence and missionary activity and so forth. So I think then and even up to the present, they're much more worried about urban disorders. And of course, in 1989, we saw a very large scale disorder. So I think part of the thing was that, that they wanted to make sure that Chinese large cities didn't end up like a Calcutta or whatever, large numbers of people streaming in that didn't have jobs, that were unemployed, that might be making trouble. A lot of people in one place not happy is not right. good for the, the regime. Lewis, do you agree with that, that there's an element, a real element of control? It certainly is. And if I were a Marxist and starting from the viewpoint that the Chinese system at the moment is basically a form of capitalism, then one of the observations that I would make is that the systems of Hukou equip the Chinese capitalist class with exceptional control over labour and exceptional capacities to eliminate forms of organised labour by simply saying, well, OK, we'll just come around and we'll round up all of the people who don't have proper urban hukou and we'll ship you out. So that gives Chinese factory owners allied with the state, enormous power over workers. It's interesting, Marty referred to the disturbances in 1989. I spent the 1989 period in the city of Chengdu, and that was the second most violent city after, after Beijing. Now, what happened when the state forces retreated after the Tiananmen crackdown occurred, the police left the city large numbers of what people referred to as street babies there, basically local rural youth, rioted in the middle of the city. And then there was a crackdown and ultimately I think order was restored with the urban forces saying, okay, well, the government protects us from the danger of rural violence. Now, this is interesting in the long term because the theory of history that Maoism came to power with was one that China's history was characterised by a series of recurrent peasant rebellions which overthrew state power. 
And you could argue that even though the Chinese state has, I think, its senior leaders have long since deserted Marxism, they fear or have feared the possibility of another rural revolt. But effectively, I think the social and political basis for traditional rural rebellion has been completely eliminated. And there is no chance of a traditional style rural revolt challenging the system presently. Let me give a footnote to go back to the Mao period again, though, because this is when all of this originated. And I think we should also discuss why it wasn't eliminated after 1978. But during the Mao period, it's not just that the system effectively made it very difficult and mostly prevented people from migrating from village to city. But people could lose their urban hukou, and large numbers of people were forcibly sent down to live in the countryside, the most famous example being so-called urban-educated youths who, in the post-cultural revolution period, 17 or 18 million of them, including Xi Jinping and the other Chinese top leaders and many of the professors that I collaborate with on the surveys I do in China and many others, spent a period of time in the countryside And initially, they didn't know whether they would ever be able to get back into the city. But it was a form of punishment, wasn't it? Well, it was portrayed as if this was a valiant nation-building thing and, you know, better educated urbanites were going to familiarize themselves with rural conditions and help and so forth. But underneath the surface, everybody understood there was no place for them in the urban job scene and they were troublemakers left over from the Cultural Revolution and you had to get them out of the city so they wouldn't cause more trouble. But, but isn't the irony here, that, and you've, you've spoken of ironies, but the irony that post-78 with Deng Xiaoping and the introduction of more market-oriented reforms, it didn't keep people where they were meant to be. I mean, it didn't stop floods of people into the cities. Well, there was clearly a decision made in the early 1980s to... To maintain the hukou system and the differentiated citizenship that Lewis talked about, but to now allow relatively much freer migration. But you still, of course, had to register when you went into a city. But now with market reforms, you could get jobs. You could, as Lewis said, after a certain period, you could buy. And by the way, it wasn't just grain that was rationed. Clothing. Clothing. Yep. Bicycles. Yeah. But, but even Me, with that, you never, Lewis, you still never got access to some of those core no. services, well, healthcare, for as example. As I say, if I return to my Marxist analysis, one of the <laughs> things that that offered, of course, was an extremely exploitable labour force, an ideal labour force, actually, from the point of view that it was poor, willing to work hard, highly educated, and completely unable to organise to protect its rights. Okay, although I would qualify the highly educated, in fact, it was designed up until quite recently, maybe 2005 afterwards, to try to keep people from the countryside, make it very difficult for them to get more than lower middle school education, nine years of education. So going on to high school or going on to college became much more almost an urban entitlement, not completely. Well, before those reforms, what happened to the children of these workers if they'd gone from the rural areas into the cities? What happened to their children? Were they able to access education? Or No, until relatively recently, again after 2005, in the largest cities, migrant children were not entitled to attend urban public schools unless they paid special high fees, despite the fact that the one-child policy and the sharp drop in fertility meant fewer and fewer urban kids attending those schools. So So there was space. So there should have been space, but in fact, there was a rigid control. So migrant families faced two unattractive alternatives. 
private migrant-run schools sprung up on the outskirts of cities that they could pay fees to enroll their kids in these schools, but the quality of schooling was uncertain, and the educational authorities of the big cities had oversight still, so they could decide to close these down at a moment's notice and leave the kids with no place to attend. So many of them, many of the families decided it was best to send their child or children back to the native village and have them go to rural schools. Because even if they did attend a school in the city, they would have to return home for the crucial exams, wouldn't they? Entry-level exams had to be held back in your home village. That's true, and I think this is an issue of the utmost importance. Having a university education is fundamental to elite status in China, legitimate elite status. And which university you go to sets where your status is. Up till the present, to take university entrance examinations, you must do it in the place where your registration is. This is the Golkar, which is just hundreds of thousands of kids taking every year. Yes. Now, looking into this question on the internet this morning, I found a justification issued being, well, if we didn't have that, there would be people flooding in from all over China to take exams in Beijing. And, well, from a meritocratic point of view, you'd say, well, wouldn't you just get the best filling up the university positions, which is what the University of Melbourne has a score-based entry system with no reference to where the exam candidate came from. So in China today, if you live in Hebei province, for example, do you have to get a higher score than if you lived in Beijing or Shanghai? You do to get into the top universities. Effectively, what they have is that the major universities in China are on the East Coast and your chances of getting into a good university if you are from Beijing or Shanghai are high. Interestingly, in poor provinces in the West, chances of getting into a local university are actually quite high as well. Now, what this essentially does is a situation perhaps in the United States, you might find that in a place that was not particularly distinguished like West Virginia, state university education was available to people who were quite poor. But the prestige of that education would be significantly lower than a Stanford or a Harvard. So you see that as enforced. Since we're going to uh, go back to referring to the United States as a comparison, again, another irony here is in my country, despite the fact that we have a president now who is very upset about illegal immigrants, Every illegal immigrant child has a legal right to attend their local public school as long as they have an address in the neighborhood. In China, the migrants' children are full citizens, but they have not been able to attend public schools until recently. And in the rural areas, this system of unhappy choices, there's a big literature now about the estimated more than 60 million left-behind children. So thinking about trying to get ahead in education through the rural side of the track... The so op- the hukou is reinforcing this divide. Yeah, absolutely. Can, the United States comparison is very illuminating there because you could argue that a support base for Trump are people who feel themselves to be fully American but put at a disadvantage in relationship to people who they don't consider fully American in terms of competition for things like university places. And so the desire of those people to emphasise their Americanness as a criterion for access to education and other resources would be similar to, say, working class people in Beijing and Shanghai wanting to see a system that emphasised their urban residents, right? So this is how the poor 
working people in cities like Beijing and Shanghai who might not be doing very well would say, okay, well, if we continue to emphasize this system, we can differentiate ourselves from the competition that we have with people coming in from outside. And similarly, you could argue that, you know, people at the top level facing competition from, you know, a huge pool of highly educated people can say, okay, I've got more chance of going to the university that my mother or father went to if I can support a system of restriction of competition than if the thing is open slather. Do you, Marty, do you see that extraordinary yeah. self-interest? There's a huge sure. self-interest in preservation. Among urbanites, there's conflicting views. And I'd done these surveys in China in which we ask people about the fairness or unfairness of various kinds of hukou discrimination. And by large majority, even among urban respondents in these surveys, they say, no, that's unfair. So you would think it would be relatively easy to eliminate this system because there's very little popular support for the principle. It is supposed to be a more meritocratic system than it was under Mao. And in many ways, I think it is a more meritocratic system than it was under Mao but not in regard to this rural lack of full citizenship. But in terms of actual daily life and practice, nonetheless, there's still a lot of prejudice among urbanites against people from the countryside. And I want to explore that divide in Chinese society a little bit more in a minute. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore, and I'm joined by China sociologist Professor Martin White and Asia historian Dr. Lewis Mayo. We're talking about the lingering legacy of the hukou system on Chinese society. You mentioned, uh, Lewis, you you can go to the same university as your mother or your father. Why is Hukou matrilineal? It follows the mother. Why? I would defer to Marty on that question, (laughs) but I would say that if you think about a lot of matrilineal systems, one thing you can observe about them is that you pretty much know whether a mother has given birth to a child or not, (laughs) whereas paternity may be harder to establish. In the one-child family policy, women, particularly rural women, became the central target of the government's concern. Targeting the women, I think, has implications for a broader strategy for keeping society under control. But the other part of it was that in the Mao period, when this matrilineal inheritance of the hukou was established, men are more likely to have opportunities to move across the divide and to get urban hukou through college entrance. There were three times as many college students at the end of the Mao era as there were female college students. They were more likely to serve in the military and maybe be demobilized into an urban job and so forth. So if there was a marriage across the rural-urban divide, you wanted to keep the children on the rural side of the divide. So there were not many, but some rural women able to marry men with urban hukou. But almost never would there be a urban woman marrying a man with a rural hukou. And and if a a rural woman married an urban hukou man, could she get the right to live in the city? So marriage does not assist. No, no, not not in the Mao period. And today? But there's a historical footnote that in, I believe it was 1998, they introduced the change that said the parents could choose to have the hukou follow either the father or the mother. Marriage is a very, very interesting way to look at this question because people's choices in marriage are very much associated with perceptions of the level of cultivation and culture of their potential partner. Now, as a result of the demographic imbalance, the gender imbalance in the Chinese population, women have potentially more choices for husbands 
This means that rural women who are single, they will certainly have more chances to marry a poor urban man and transfer to the cities through marriage than even a wealthy rural man will have to transfer to the city through marriage by marrying an urban woman. The intensity with which these issues are discussed and the preoccupation with what in Chinese is referred to as suzi or personal cultivation or quality is one of the great organizing principles of sociocultural division in contemporary China. Of course, in the post-1980s, being on a different hukou as your spouse doesn't prevent you from living together anymore, but it doesn't give you rights to change your hukou status. So by marrying an urban hukou man, you don't automatically change to his hukou status. Mm. You still keep your rural hukou status. I should add here that you can, of course, effectively migrate to cities like Shanghai and Beijing. There's, in a sense, a process not dissimilar to migrating to a country like Australia. But the criterion for acquiring, say, Shanghai residency would be more demanding, far more demanding than for a a business or skilled migrant coming into Australia. Before we pursue some of those issues that you've just raised, we've talked a lot about education. How does hukou affect healthcare in China? Healthcare in China, of course, was the subject of an earlier Ear to Asia podcast, but specifically on healthcare, one of those vital services. How does hukou affect that? It's a complicated story because it's changed dramatically during the course of the reform period. In the Mao period, there were various kinds of basic medical insurance system. There were the famous barefoot doctors in the countryside, rural cooperative medical insurance. But in the early reform period, basically that system collapsed and large numbers of people, most of the people in China lost any health insurance coverage whatsoever. About 90% of the people in rural China went from having some kind of health insurance, however basic, to having none at all. Uh, And even among people, urban workers, some of them, for instance, they had had been able to cover their dependents, they were not covered anymore. So you had a drastic shrinkage, and migrants had the poorest coverage of all. But since 2003, roughly, there's been a national drive. There was a sense of crisis about the whole healthcare system. Basically, there's been an extraordinary rise for all groups, and now including even migrants, in having at least some basic health care coverage. But there are different types of health care coverage. If you have an urban hukou and you're working with a stable urban job, you're in part of one plan that has much better coverage and reimbursement and so forth. Rural people have a new system of village cooperative medical insurance systems, and urbanites who are not part of a work unit also have a system that they're supposed to pay into that provides some minimal insurance. But for the migrants in particular, one of the big catches is they're covered not by the organization they're working for, they're covered by the plan back in the village because that's where their hukou is. So they can, these migrants can seek medical attention in an urban area, but they have to pay for it and then seek reimbursement back right. in their home village. Because is that- as we discussed in our previous podcast, you know, the demand for top quality medical attention means that public hospitals that are considered to be top tier are flooded with people seeking medical care in those institutions. And that results in riots, essentially. But it's an interesting dimension of that, I think, is that it's not simply people trying to get to the best medical care 
just for medical reasons, like we all would, we would all go to the top medical institution. But I think underlying that is much of the kind of sense of humiliation that I think continues to attach to rural background people and their own sense of self, I think, is constantly subject to threat by the hukou, in a sense, caste distinction between urban and rural. Rural hukou has something of the quality of what the sociologists and psychologists would call stigma. Yes. So, so what does that mean for the, the health of the migrant population? It's difficult to say because on balance, the migrants are younger and healthier than the people that lay behind in the village and sometimes in the urbanites. But it's certainly the case that even when they're covered and have to go back to the village to gain reimbursement, their coverage is less adequate than people in these big state units and major companies in the city. So there's still there's still a burden of out-of-pocket expenditures, yep. particularly yep. for medical crises. So it should <laughs> result in lots more health problems and lots more financial problems. There has been in the past, there's less now, but still some, People avoiding treatment because they're worried about the cost that's going to be incurred, even if they have insurance. You talked earlier, Lewis, about the ability to move from rural to urban Hukou and potentially in the other direction. In 2013, there were changes to the system that essentially made it easier for people with rural registration to obtain registration in a tier three city. Mm. What exactly is a tier three city and why wasn't that particularly successful? Chinese cities are classified in terms of their economic level and their size. And I guess you could say the level of prestige and dignity that attaches to them. But is a tier three city an attractive proposition from an employment point of view, from a lifestyle point of view? Well, the attempt has been to try and encourage people to move to some of these cities to avoid particularly pollution in the large centres. But I would say also because people have such a strong sense of cultural dignity attached to the city in which they're living or to which they wish to move, this is not entirely successful. And this is it's important to note that this was one factor in the Tiananmen protests. At the time, in the 1980s, the top universities in Beijing were recruiting on a nationwide basis. That meant that a large number of top undergraduates in these top-tier universities were faced on graduation with the prospect of having to go home, and they didn't want to do that. <laughs> and so this actually produced you know, a significant kind of backlash against the government because at that stage, graduates had assigned occupations, and what had happened, I suppose, from the opening of the examination system after the Cultural Revolution in 1978 was essentially that, well, that the most talented people from all over the country would go to top-tier universities and they would be given specialist higher-level training and then supposedly sent back to develop their own places, which they didn't want to do. But, Marty, in the same way that Lewis talks about attachment to one's you know, urban centre or to one city, does it also work from a rural perspective as well so that the option of a Tier 3 city versus having a plot of land, having an ability to benefit from that plot of land. Is that also part of the equation? The Chinese authorities have been trying to encourage this throughout the reform period to try to keep them out of the biggest, most attractive cities and give them various inducements to go to the lower level cities. You referred to this post-2013 and the next year, a national urbanization program was 
announced and given a lot of publicity. And that did include a pledge to have a drive to convert a quota of 100 million people from rural hukou to urban hukou by 2020, by next year. But that was out of a total of 270 million estimated rural urban migrants. So it's only one portion, you know, a little over a third of the total number. And there are two prongs to this. One is at the lowest level cities, as you indicated. It's easier without qualifications. But these largest cities have had already been developing and now have introduced in a much more formalized way point systems. You have to have a certain number of points if you have a college degree, if you bought an apartment, if you've started and owned a business, if you've had a stable urban job and have paid into the social insurance fund for at least five years and so forth. Earlier, before the one-child policy was eliminated, you got points for not violating by having an extra baby. I assume that's gone away by now. It's an interesting idea. It's part of a government pledge, actually, to eventually eliminate the hukou system Mm. and these discriminations. But I think in China, one of the things that makes it difficult to get people to go to these small towns and cities is, in some sense, Mao's legacy again coming back to bite the current regime because, essentially, what happened was decades of everybody understanding a system where if you could get to and stay in the largest cities, you were privileged and everywhere there was a clear status ranking all the way down the line. So now there's a mindset that it's still much better if you can get yourself up to the next highest rung in the urban ladder. So how many people would actually manage to go from holding a rural hukou into a tier one city? Well, that's not clear. This 100 million target that I mentioned over six years, which is quite demanding. But people in the largest cities that I've talked to, and I have a doctoral student at Harvard who's been doing research in Chongqing, Mm. which is one of the four national level cities. And she says it's now perceived as becoming easier. But again, it ties back to this question about sujur. You can't just because you're there and you have a job and you're renting an apartment and whatever, you don't get full citizenship rights Is, is as it a up migrant. to each city to dictate its terms? Each city has its own regulations that have to be in accord with national regulations, but there will be minor differences from city to city. Mm-hmm. And it, Chongqing is seen as, for instance, as making a little better treatment of migrants than Beijing, but I can't cite you the specific differences. I'd like to go back a little and say that, yes, Marty's absolutely right about the equal opportunity questions, but we could think about the meaning of hukou and the urban-rural divide in China as being something like what race means in the United States. That, in other words, you may ascend to the top of society educationally, economically, in terms of your achievements, but your skin colour will still be a crucial determinant in your social experience. And so, in a sense, that might be the easiest way for us to understand how this cleavage is conceptualised in sociocultural terms. The American government is, of course, devoted to trying to eliminate racial discrimination and racial prejudices and racial disadvantage, and there are numerous programmes to try and do something about it. They failed. And one might argue that perhaps there's a certain parallel with the situation with hukou reform and its inability to solve these problems in China. Because, Marty, that's a really obvious question, isn't it? And perhaps uh, it's just been answered by Lewis. Why doesn't the government just abolish hukou? I mean, they've said that they will. Why don't they just do it? 
all along they've been concerned about, again, the overtaxing of urban public facilities Mm. and urban public order and so forth. And those still seem to be very prominent. The strange thing is that they have been for a couple of decades now talking about the need to eventually eliminate this clearly non-meritocratic caste-like system. And the strange thing is in the reform period, there were two systems of inherited status, and the other one was based upon your class origin. And people not only had a household registration status, they had a class label that went in all of your personal documents and in your household. And that came from your, essentially your work, wasn't it really, or the the work of your parents? No, it came from your family history from before 1949. So you could have a landlord. Whether they were teachers or professors. Well, but you could have a landlord label that stigmatized you in the 1970s, even though your grandfather lost his land and maybe lost his life in the early 1950s, Mm. but you still bore that label. In 1978-79, The reformers said this system is obviously out-of-date, non-meritocratic. It doesn't consider people based upon their talent, their contributions. They eliminated it. But the HUCO system, they eliminated the restriction on migration, but they didn't eliminate the status discrimination, which still stigmatizes people from rural origins. But it seems somewhat contradictory that on the one hand, the government says that its intention is to get rid of it. And at the same time, it is introducing changes to make some things easier. And on the other hand, it's in their interest to keep it. So why even change it? It's interesting to think about what Marty was just saying in terms of the way that a lot of Chinese people who discuss these questions and discuss the long-term history of the Chinese Communist Party tend to talk in dynastic terms. It's as if the incoming communists were a new dynasty in the same way that, say, for instance, the Qing dynasty came in as a conquering dynasty from Manchuria, from what's now the, the northeastern provinces of China, and as a result of its conquest, entrenched its own people as a ruling elite. The peasant revolutionaries who came to power in 1948 wanted to ensure that their redness, if you like, was something they could pass on to their children and that the people that they had conquered, the urbanites in the cities, could not usurp those positions. And some of the sociologies of the conflicts in high schools in particular, in Beijing in particular, in the Cultural Revolution, emphasised this conflict between those who were the children of top schools coming from these peasant revolutionary backgrounds and therefore wanting to emphasise the peasant class background and the talented people, the people who'd got into those institutions, usually on the basis of coming from a highly educated family, and these two split into warring factions, essentially, with one arguing it's the bloodline, the revolutionary heritage that's important, and the other arguing, no, it's your commitment to revolution. Even though I have a bad class background, I'm as devoted to Chairman Mao and to revolutionary change and to egalitarianism as you who are actually becoming part of a new elite. So those conflicts, of course, played out in extremely violent terms in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And the consequences of them were to largely destroy belief in Maoist ideology, so that when Mao died, his ideology had very, very few supporters. And to an extent, a lot of the thinking about Hukou reflects those complex experiences of members of the revolutionary elites who were children dealing with the countryside through the experience of being sent there. 
And many of those people were shocked by the fact that the countryside was so backward and their sense of cultural difference from the rural world shaped their ideologies into the present. So their experiences in the countryside were those people are in a world that I don't understand and I'm not part of. And that, I think, helps to explain when you think that the people that are policymakers in China had that kind of background, then that mindset, you can argue, is perpetuated basically into the present. I think that's true, but that's one of the real problems for whether China will progress economically, educationally, culturally, that they constructed a system in the reform period that made use of this Maoist very perverse system of household control and produced this huge outflux of migrant labor of you know mostly lower middle school educated youths that served them very well in the reform period to make China this economic powerhouse up to a middle level of economic development. But now it serves them very poorly because there's an actual decline in the availability of migrant labor partly due to lower fertility and the fact that so many had already left. There's something like a 30% decline of new entrants of the labor force after 2010. So China can't rely anymore on this, and they have to upgrade the human capital, in other words, the educational background, but they have built this system that takes a majority of young people, close to 60% of Chinese are now classified as living in cities, but two-thirds or so of young people actually have rural hukou. So the question is, how can you get more and more of them going to upper middle school and going on to university? They need to do that in order for China to progress into the future and become a rich country. And all of the rules of the game up until 2005 or so were structured to keep most rural people from going beyond lower middle schooling and education. You mentioned much earlier that they had changed the rules. So now urban public schools are supposed to admit students who are migrant children without paying special fees. But the problems, as Lewis mentioned earlier, are that they still can't go all the way up through the system in the cities. It's a fascinating debate and one that we could probably continue to discuss, I would imagine. And indeed, we no doubt will revisit this on Ear to Asia. Thank you so much, Marty and Lewis, for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Our guests have been sociologist Martin White, who is the John Swanster Professor of International Studies and Sociology Emeritus at Harvard University and also a University of Melbourne Asia scholar, and Asia historian Dr Lewis Mayo of Asia Institute. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 4th of April 2019. Producers were Kelvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.